So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we're really excited to be joined by Yusef Serenkuma. And we're going to be talking today about colonialism and the Kenyan elections, democracy. Yusef is a columnist in Uganda's newspapers, a scholar and a playwright, and it's a pleasure to have him on the show. Thank you very much for being here, Yusef. Thank you very much for having me. So I, I'd like to start with a piece that you wrote in the wake of the elections in Kenya. And you wrote this for, for Rope, the Review of African Political Economy. And you say, we are at the bottom of the development indices, not because of an apparent democratic deficit, but because we are still a colonized continent, looted for sport and the pursuit of quote-unquote democracy in whatever form, simply fits into the new technologies of continued colonization. So I wanted to start here because I teach about colonialism. Um, in our 10th grade, we talk about the Berlin Conference and about King Leopold in the Congo. And we also teach about the 1960s and post-colonial moment in Africa. And so I'm wondering, how can you explain the fact that Africa saw decolonization, but at the same time, there's still colonialism? How does that work? Yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting question. I've actually been struggling with it for some time. I have written a couple of pieces to explain that you know we are still colonized, and the in the nature of colonialism is a is is a is a is a difficult one to see. You know, it's, it's not easily visible. Uh, one of the images that I commonly draw is that our colonizers dropped colonial outposts. They dropped their short khakis, which they used to wear. If you look at the old picture of the colonial administrators dressed in short khakis, they stopped carrying rifles around. Nowadays, they're smartly dressed in suits. Uh, they smile with us and they sign contracts with us. They look like our friends. In fact, they have actually conscripted many of our friends in the academia, um, in the in the media, online in the press they they sound nice to us they they speak the language of human rights they speak the language of anti-autocracy they speak the language of democracy right we have professors who have made careers in the western world talking about african democracy and the african democratic deficit right so it's I, i've argued plenty of times that democracy is the language is the new technology the language of human rights is is the is technology of pillage Right. And it seems such a difficult thing to say that, you know, when you say, so like, say that democracy, the new technology of pilot of, of the African continent, many of your listeners, including friends, including people that you at, 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 at academic institution, institutions such as Makere, will be like, what are you talking about? Democracy is the future, is the only way in which we can best be governed. And I disagree vehemently because, you know, it's a simple thing. You know, after independence, many African governments didn't have an elite, right? Many, many of our first independence, post-independence leaders were people just coming from university. Uh, they came from university in their 20s and early 30s and they quickly became leaders and ministers, right? So the African continent, uh, 50 years after independence, has been struggling to construct an elite, right? To develop an elite, a, a, a critical mass of educated people. So if colonialism thrived on divide and rule, democracy does the same thing. So democracy divides the elite in the country. It turns wonderful people into bitterly 
opposed groups. So you have a smaller elite, which is divided into competitive political parties. And the ways in which these political parties play their game, they are so hostile to each other to the point of killing each other. So you spend entire, people spend entire lifetimes as opposition politicians. And in the end, you know, when, when, you're, when you're negotiating contracts with, uh, with uh, say, Total, when Total comes to the African continent, you're discussing, you're negotiating a contract with it, you're discussing a contract with an elite which is divided. So you have some really wonderful brains on the other side as opposition. They don't come close. We have a winner-take-all policy. They don't, have come, they don't come close to seeing the fine print in the contracts. We, we recently signed a contract with Total in this country, Uganda, and you know, many people don't know what is in the contracts, right? Because the, the government in office, you know, it's the winner take all. They can choose to do whatever they want. So you have very smart people on the other side and they can't see what is in the contract. They can't sit on the same table discussing issues of national importance, which matters to all of them. You know, so in the end, democracy has done exactly what colonialism did, divide and rule. You have a very small elite, you divide it. You know, the other, the quick example I can give you is a country called South Sudan, right? South Sudan, recently newly minted country, a very small elite. It has two super elite people. It has Dr. Eric Machal on the other hand and Salva Kiri on the other. Now, these two are so bitterly divided to the point of killing each other, right? And all of them, both of them carry entire constituencies of the few elite that South Sudan have. Right, so if you if they sit down, if if the branch which is in office, which is the branch of Salvakir, is discussing a contract with Sinoc or whoever is mining South Sudan's resources, the other camp, which has an equally elite, smart people, they can't see the fine print of these contracts. You know, because it's a winner take all. As who are democratically elected, are in charge of the country, and all you guys will be your position for the entirety of your time. But this is a very tiny elite. You talk about a countries such as Somalia, where I do my field work. Why would Somalia be going through an electoral process? Why do they need an election? Right? They have a very tiny elite. They've been going, they've been in a, in a moment of war for a very extended period. And you know, when the business, a bit of calm happens, they go into an election. Why? These are countries, this is a country whose entire elite in its smallness have to sit together and find ways of stability. But then they go into a thing called an election. Why? Central African Republic, an election. Why? Libya, in the mess that it is in, it has to go through an election. Why? You see? So the question I'm asking, why? This is the country where people should be discussing stability. We need to find avenues of talking about stability and exploration of our resources in a manner which brings our very tiny elite together. Right, I can tell you funny part that you know this country called Uganda uh, doesn't have. We are estimated, which I think is kind of sort of a lie. We are estimated to be forty-four million people. Right, out of the forty-four million, we don't have two thousand PhDs in this country. Maybe that is small. We don't have ten thousand PhDs. So if you think about 10,000 PhDs in a country of 44 million people, that is very minuscule. I'm trying to give you a picture of our elite, right? So if you come down, if you don't have 10,000, you don't have 50,000 master's degrees, maybe you have a million bachelor's degrees or 2 million, even for 5 million. 
that tells you the nature of the elite. The elite is very, very small. Now, when you have this elite bitterly divided against each other to the point of fighting and even killing each other, what are you doing? You're actually playing the trap of the colonial government, right? The colonial government, divide and rule, divide and conquer. That's what you're doing, right? So, so this, is, this is the spirit with which I came to the election that recently happened uh, in, in, in Kenya. Can you talk about that now? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm here. I, I'd like to talk about that now. So, uh, because I yeah. think probably a lot of our listeners don't know much about the election. What was the election, and who was running against whom? What were the parties like? And as you get into that, I, I'm also kind of curious when you say that there's division, political division in, in in Africa. Is that an ideological split between the two parties? Are these are there left parties and right parties which are fighting, or it, it, does it look different than that? It's different than that. You you can't talk about left and right in this in in many of these African countries. We have we have political parties which I've said they're not political parties. These are like copy and paste. You know we have the DP in this country, the Democratic Party. You know after independence, nobody knew what democracy was, right? But the little elite who are conscripted to a colonial modernity thought about you know having a de- democratic party you know you when you have less than 1000 educated people who thinks about democracy who 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 thinks needs uh universal adult suffrage who is thinking the language of civil civil liberties when you still have kingdoms and chiefdoms so we copy pasted the language from europe and imposed onto our countries especially because the elite were minted from the colonial school Right, so we don't have left and right. So that's not a division you can talk about. We we've copy pasted. So we have something called the Congress Party, the Uganda Post Congress. Nobody was thinking about Congress. And this is like, you know, you copy paste stuff you hear uh, in Europe, in North America, and you say we have a political party called uh, the Uganda Post Congress. Nobody was thinking about Congress in 1960. No, we just these ideas were coming from Europe. Our colonizers were very happy to teach us forming political parties. So we have these things. They have outlived their usefulness. They're still here with us. They've stuck with us. And we call them political parties, right? So the we had something like the Vataka Party in this country, which like the land party, the party which was striving for land. So that had an ideological anchor. It was rooted in the aspirations of the people, right? We had a, a, something called the Farmers Party. So Farmers Party was rooted in opening up the space for agriculture, for cooperatives to operate. All those things died. We had a thing called Kavaka Yeka, the king only. Now, that was a real original party, which was rooted in the aspiration of the land, that everything that should be uh, run in the country should be wound around the kingdom of Uganda. So there was a thing called Kavaka Yeka, only the king. Right. So those were uh, the things that came close to being political parties, like in the, re- in the original sense of the term. Everything else we have in this country are like really a special purpose vehicles to deliver us somewhere, right? You know, it's common across the, Kenya has been quite nice in being able to overcome this, this trap of, of electoral political party trap. Uh, Kenya is often in the spirit of movements. They're always changing alliances because, you know, they, they, they think they have political projects which have to be contained in their time. So they are often moving between one project and the other. And every time they move, they form movements to pursue those ends. And they tend to call them political parties, you know, ironically. But they are actually movements because as soon as this electoral cycle is done, they become something else, right? So you find people who are opposing each other, coming together, and then they're forming another alliance and then fighting together, you know, something like that, right? So when the first bit is that Africa is still in the trap of calling our politics 
of negotiating our politics through this thing called multi-party politics. We were not yet there yet. Many of the things we copy pasted, and we call them political parties, right? Mm -hmm. So moving into the Kenya election, you want to come in? No, no, tell me about the Kenyan election. Yeah. So the Kenyan election had what I, what I think, theoretically, they should be called political movements. So they had the Azmio, which is the thing of uh, uh, Raila Odinga, in Kenya Kwanzaa. Kenya Kwanzaa, which won the election, you need to know, Kenya Kwanzaa is like uh, Kenya first. It's this kind of Trumpism spreading onto the African continent, but without you know anybody calling it out. So uh, William Ruto, who actually won the election, called his movement Kenya Kwanzaa, which is like Kenya first, right? Like <laughs> yeah, America yeah. first, right? So yeah. this is the, won the election here. But the election was so smooth, right? It was very smooth. You know, in the elections that we used to on the African continent, you know, there were no arrest of oppositional groups because you can't clearly talk about an oppositional group. It, it, it was absolute transparency. The observers, the Kenyans themselves, they felt this process was very smooth and transparent. There was a court process because, you know, the, those who lost the, uh, the Raila Odinga camp, which lost the Azmiyo party, which lost the election, went to court and they had a weak case. And when the ruling came out that they had lost the election fairly and squarely, and they had a weak case they presented to court, public opinion was, was content. They were convinced. You know, they lost, they were just bitter losers. They didn't have a case to present in court. So the entire process, right, from the, the campaign process, the election itself, the tallying of results, the, the court case with, with the part which had lost the election, you know, Africans felt, yeah, we have finally arrived. We have an election that you can actually call an election, right? Because if you compare Zambia, if you compare Zimbabwe, if you compare Uganda, which was like a like a military operation, if you compare Rwanda, if you compare Magufli's, Magufli's Tanzania, in the region, people felt a major African country had gone through a smooth political process, right? And I said, I had at my piece, I'm warning Africans that the smoothness of our, that election, as we celebrate it, the smoothness of, our, of that election is actually a perfection of our pilage. When you see elections becoming that smooth, it means our pilage is getting smoother, right? I don't know if you can have such a construction. And, and as I said that piece, this is a difficult argument to say, right? Democracy is the language through which you're being exploited because you can't you can't detach electoral processes, a democracy from neoliberal politics. Or you, you can't detach that from them. It's difficult. The language, democracy is so closely knit with electoral processes. You know, the thing that Mark said, you know, the state being the state, it's between lawyers and merchants taking their decisions, pursuing their interests, however grievous they could be to their compatriots. So the, the moment you perfect having people going to election, in, into political office in the smooth electoral process as it was, it, it blurs, it masks the struggles of the continent. And you, when you look also on the continent, when you look at Zambia, for example, Zambia had gone through electoral process for a very long time. They've been changing their leaders quite smoothly. Malawi has. Malawi has been changing uh, electoral, their presidents very smoothly but they are as poor as Uganda, where it's difficult to change leaders, where we've lived under dictator for the last 37 years, right? They remain impoverished as if they've lived under Uganda. 
So well, if you, you, look, you said, but if I could just interrupt for one second, because this is very, very interesting, but yeah. it sounds like you're saying di dictatorship is not the alternative that you're looking for either, right? I mean, it's not, you're, you're definitely, I mean, I understand your argument about the problems yeah. with democracy because these elections make everything seem like neoliberalism is legitimate um, and plunder is legitimate and pillage is legitimate. And it makes sense to me, but you're also saying that there are part, large parts of Africa which are being plundered by dictatorship. So what does an alternative look like? What's a model for you? Well, bef before you, you, you go into the, more, the alternative, I, I think I, I, I'm afraid I could have said it, which is because of a slippery slope there. I think I, quick, I too quickly connected uh, democracy to neoliberalism. I think mm -hmm. that, that's it. I, I think I shouldn't quickly do it. It's, it's actually accurate. But the more I quickly make the connection, the more I lose the critique of democracy that I'm mm -hmm. making. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The critique of democracy that I want to make is that the critique blurs. The more we pursue and continue fighting for a smoother and better democracy, the more we forget, the more we have forgotten the core challenges of this African continent. The core challenge of this African continent is not, has never been the ways in which we are governed. All right, I don't know if it's possible for us to disconnect governance from from our, I think, I don't know if it's able, if we're able to disconnect the ways in which we're governed from the ways in which we're pillaged. I think the pursuit of smoother models of governance has made us, has made our actual challenges invisible, right? I'll give you a quick example. The banking regime we have across the African continent, the banking regime we have across the African continent, the Economist, which is like a, a, a very, uh, eminent journal based in the UK, who wrote a piece in 2019, must have been 2020, arguing where the, the reporter noted that, you know, African banks remain the most profitable in the world. Right now, that's a real challenge. Our underdevelopment is actually because of the banking regime we have across the African continent, especially in Sub-Saharan Africa. I've lived in Europe and interest rates in Europe, if they go to 2%, you have a riot in the show of Berlin. There'll be a riot was interest rate at 2%. We have contract interest rates across Sub-Saharan Africa in an average of 15%. There's no business person who can thrive at 15% of interest rate. Basically, you're working for the bank, right? The Kenyan government in 2018 tried to cap interest rate at 4%, 4, which is still humongous, 4 or mm -hmm. 7 Mm-hmm. In front seven, you know what those banks did? The banks stopped lending. Basically, they chose to sabotage the economy of Kenya. Mm -hmm. They stopped giving credit, right? And the Kenyan government had to give in, right? And you know the problem: all these banks are foreign-owned. Majority, maybe not all, majority of them are foreign-owned. In Uganda, we have twenty-four commercial banks. Twenty-four commercial banks. Only two are locally owned. Mm -hmm. Only two, and majority are foreign from up from Barclays Bank to Stancha to Equity. All these foreign banks are here, taking away away all the sweat, all the labor of Ugandans who are laboring every single day in the market, in the streets, in the gardens. The interest rates are averaging at fifteen. Who does business in an economy where interest rate is at twelve percent? And this is across the African, sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, I, I was reading a piece the other day 
that we signed secret contracts at, on independence so that we never charge below double figures of interest rate. These banks signed secret contracts. This is written in a book. A friend of mine was sharing this book with me the other day, a book written by Mahmoud Mamdani. Uh, there's a guy called, I can, I called Gashenberg. Gashenberg wrote a paper called The Impact of Independence on, and of, on the Role of Commercial Banking in Uganda's Economic Development between 1960 and 1968. And in there, he writes that, you know, our leaders on independence signed secret contracts with these international banks because there were three banks then on independence in Uganda. All of them were foreign-owned, were owned by the British. So they signed contracts, they, no, rather secret agreements. This is Gashenberg writing, secret agreements with the government, with the independence leaders of the time, that they'll never charge less than double-digit figures. This is why we can only do 12, 15, sometimes 35. Just, that's just the banking regime alone. So if you want to lift Africans out of poverty, the question is it's not a leadership question. Right? It's not a leadership question. It's an absolute imperial question. Change the banking regime. So you move away from that. When the Americans pushed structure adjustment in the African continent, they ruined our lives. Now, what they've done is, you know, they've so systematically worked so hard to keep the conversation on structure adjustment away from the public domain on so many in, in universities and and, and commercial TV. Well, well, Yusuf, I want to talk to you about that, actually. So if you could explain to the audience what you mean by structural adjustment and then i'm interested in how it is that they they hide this from the public so structure adjustment were policies pushed on the african continent by the world bank and the imf in the 1980s uh they became fully functional in the 1960s and and, and rather in the 19 1990s and the 2000s and they are still functional even today they're still operational and and the the key imperative the key requirement was that governments get out of running the economy governments get out of they privatize governments should get out of running businesses right because the key sectors of any economy like the transport uh, coffee trade extension services banking uh, most of these were done by uh, governments had parastatus which which ran these departments of the economy so you had we had uganda railways which was a government business we got uganda coffee marketing board which was selling our coffee we had Uganda Telecom, which was our doing our telecommunication. We had UEB, Uganda Electric Support, which was giving us power. We had National Housing, which was building houses for everybody, uh, not just the rich, but every every person. We had cooperatives at every single said you can call it a district. We had Mango Cooperative, Bugis Cooperative, Uganda Cooperative. These cooperatives were involved in putting, mobilizing farmers and businessmen into collectively bargaining for their rights in the marketplace. So the 19- Right, I just real quick, I saw an article that you read where you were talking about coffee today and the coffee farmers have no cooperatives anymore. And exactly. So, and so no leverage over prices. Yeah, exactly. So all this was put on the dictates of the market, demand and supply. And, and it was forced to kick governments out of this, right? It was forced by the IMF and World Bank. You know, you had to present a certificate a certificate of of compliance you know the imf had to give you a certificate of compliance to go to the to the world bank to get credit to get grants right so it was compelled i remember meeting in Addis Ababa, which i learned from one of the attendees where 
almost all economies of the Af of, of Africa, from 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 Ghana to Nigeria to East Africa, all economists argued these countries, 30 years out of colonialism, didn't have rich people. They don't have a bourgeois. They don't have a local bourgeois to run these things. They neither have the experience nor the money, nor the personnel to run these things. And these things need to be run by the government. Because we just come out of an, of colonialism for 30 years. We don't have an elite. We don't have a bourgeois. Nobody, right? And, and they argued quite succinctly that you're going to ruin the African continent. All acronyms are going to be ruined. And World Bank and IMF pushed these things onto the African continent, forcing people to present such sort of compliance. I have read from a book by a friend of mine called friend of mine, Jörg Vigros, a, a German, a German a political economist who teaches at the University of Leeds. In his book, he writes that, you know, to make sure they proved that these parastatals were not working, they need to be privatized so that they can be more functional. They had to force accountants of the World Bank to enter these, these the, the accounting departments of these parastatals and come out with forged documents showing that these, these parastatals were not working. This man has some record. They, they were forging accountabilities to show that this government, this person were working at a loss. You know, our former minister of finance, Ezra Roma, wrote a wonderful piece in the local press where he argued that our banking, you know, we had Uganda Commercial Bank, which was a government bank, helping farmers, helping local businesses with lower interest rates so they can do business, right? It was closed on forged documents that it was making losses. And once it was sold, it created way for all these big banks from Europe and North America to take over our economy. Once everything was privatized, once Uganda Radio's Corporation was privatized, once UEB was privatized, Uganda Telecom was privatized, you created space for MTN, which is South African owned, and you created space for Airtel, which comes from both India and the UK. And they came up and they took over our economies. Right, so you have telecommunication, which takes so much money. I wrote a piece just to do the count of how much money leaves this country on every single day via telecommunication. It's humongous. About thirty billion Uganda shillings leaves every single every single month by one company, one company Airtel. They take away thirty billion Uganda shillings because they're not local, and you know there's so much evidence from this government that you know most of the profits are living. Uh, Uganda. It's easy to take profit out of Uganda, right? So much money is lost. I think at a tune of uh, $200 million in every year, it leaves this this very small economy. Uh, Youssef, you're writing about this in, in the newspaper in Uganda. Yeah, I've written about you're this. Also, in you're also published in, in Kenya widely. So I guess my question is why, and, and you know, you've written another also very compelling article about why there's not more resistance across the continent. Why aren't people resisting this type of neocolonialism in Africa? And you were mentioning before that the, the press and the universities, you know, it's not this is not talked about, the, the structural justice is not talked about as much. Why is that? Uh, you know, A, it's because this neocolonialism is, 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 is exciting. It's, uh, it's not as crass as the colonialism before, right? The language is different. And yeah, I think the only thing I'm struggling to do is to make this language visible. One of the languages we spend our entire lifetimes trapped in perfecting governance. It's a trap. We, we are trapped in the language discussing human rights, democracy, parliamentary politics. 
We spend entire lifetimes. Nobody talks about banking. Nobody talks about you know exploration of resources. We are concerned with governance. And like I said, because of the governance question, so oh, oh, I don't know. I don't know how much time you've got, man. I don't know how much time you have because this is very complex. The <laughs> question you ask me is very complex. I'll tell you things like NGOs in Africa, mm. uh, you know, a trap for the elites. You know, when you use the 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 highly educated you become on the African continent, you're likely to go into the NGO work, right? It's like a, it's, it looks like your choice, you, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I should I should tell you that. I should not tell you about anything else, but I should tell you the trap of the elite, which is like a structure design. And many people are trapped up in NGO work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when fracture adjustment happened in the African continent, the IMF and World Bank knew that, you know, we actually are going to ruin these, these countries. Once we ruin those countries, the elite in those countries will make noise. And once the elite in those countries make noise, they'll kick out the governments which are implementing our policies. And we have some sort of revolutionary movements across the continent. How, how do we trap the elite from making noise, right? And the trick was simple. So they, they devised something they called uh, budget support and project support, right? So you can support a government directly, but you can also support projects. Now in supporting projects, you can support government projects or you can support people in the non-governmental sector, people who do things that governments are supposed to do but we call them non-government organizations. You know who those people are? Those are the elite. So the elite entered an era of non-governmentalism, right? So we have about 8,000 NGOs in Uganda. They are doing things ranging from health, providing health services, education, human rights. They do lots of things, helping the people with disabilities, HIV, AIDS, every single thing you can think about in this country has a bunch of people working in the NGO sector. Now, when you go to where these people work, these are are our smart, these are very smart people, I'm telling you. They're PhDs, master's degrees. What they do, they're writing proposals to USAID, to the the European Union, to DGF. DGF is called the Democracy Governance Facility. They are writing these proposals and they're getting humongous amounts of money. So... Our colonizers know that once an elite writes a proposal and has a budget of 200 million, you give it to him. It's peanuts, it's very small. But for an individual, that's a lot of money. So, you know, I'm gonna give this guy, he said he's gonna be uh, fighting to improve our human rights, their human rights. Give him 200 million. You know, he's gonna steal, he's gonna use 100 for his personal you know, issues. He's going to build a house, buy a new car, take a second wife or third. Polygamy is not illegal in this country. And you'll keep him in that cycle. He will be pretending to be doing something, but actually doing nothing. But he has money. So most of our rich people in this country are in the energy sector. They are are rich, they're elite, and they don't go through the pains of the ordinary people. So they shop in in supermarkets, fancy supermarkets from South Africa and Germany. They drive uh, air-conditioned SUVs. You know, they've told me that I'm bitter about their wealth because they're idiots. They drive <laughs> these fancy cars. When they're riding over these potholes, they don't feel the potholes, you know, and they have comfortable lives. So when 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 poor people take to the streets to protest, because they, they're, they're the better educated, they're like, what's wrong with these people? What is wrong with them? We're helping. We are the NGO sector. The government is not doing well, but we're helping. And they've done this for the last 30 years. And I can tell you, ever since they started doing this, 
I, I, was, I appeared one time to talk to them. And I said, look, guys, for 30 years you've been doing NGO work. Everything you are involved in has gotten worse. Don't you realize there's a problem? Thank you.